this is Jason Albert from The High Route, and you are listening to episode three of The High Route podcast. I was excited to record this episode, which features a lively conversation with Kelly Cordes and Adam Fabricant. If you are unfamiliar with Cordes and his work, you are about to familiarize yourself with a gem. He's a notable alpinist, a notable mixologist, and even a better writer which is saying something. If you haven't read his classic book, The Tower, please do. It's such a good and in-depth read. Anyhow, Cordes, although a fine and very competent skier, comes to mountain travel as an alpinist first and skier second. Fabricant is the opposite. He comes to the conversation more as a high-end ski mountaineer seeking first descents rather than an alpinist. For this reason, I wanted to bring the two together and learn about their similarities and differences when approaching more cutting-edge objectives in the mountains. Before we get to the episode, if you like what you are hearing, please consider supporting The High Route by subscribing. The High Route is our website focusing on human-powered backcountry riding, the kind where folks make turns on snow. You can find us at thehighroute.com. Okay, here's something a little more complex, so please listen up. To find the website, you're going to need to know how to type a hyphen. The website can be found, and this is all one word, the-high-route.com. One more time, the-high-route.com. Yes, we have hyphens in the name. Our model is pretty simple at the high route. We'll ask for a modest annual subscription fee to access our stories which if you think about it, it's a rather old school model. However, our podcasts are free. We produced this podcast, the High Route Podcast, and also a more gear-focused podcast hosted by Wilson, Wyoming's Gavin Hess, and that is the High Route Gear Shed Podcast. Anyhow, the podcasts that are not free to produce, edit, or store on a server, so if you like the podcast, please consider supporting the High Route. We'd appreciate it. Okay, that's the plug for the website and our mission. We'll pick up the conversation between Cordis and Fabricant with a reference about calorie intake and entertainment on big expeditions. It's something we covered recently on the High Routes Gearshed podcast. Okay, thank you for listening. My biggest concern is caloric intake, Adam, after listening to that. I'm a little worried. I don't want you to go hungry, dude. Yeah, that's uh, that's fine. I can be hungry for a couple of weeks. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Say that now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In all honesty, when you guys were talking about you're limiting yourself to one song an evening, do you remember that part? I, kinda, I, I did like yeah. that. I love that. I was like, these guys are like monks. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, they. I guess the new solar panels are like really light. We just got the 315 gram solar panel. So we might be able to have nonstop DJing. Yeah. Shit. You download like Eastbound and Down and watch it on your phone or something, you know? You watch Will Ferrell movies, all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. like on that, the last time we tried it, we just had one battery. And we wanted to like save it for navigation, you know, like critical things, not, not music. But now we might go with the modern solar panel. But I think this circles back to risk because there is high, you know, if you're not satiating sort of your like, I'm getting bored out of my mind kind of aspect, you are at risk of being an ass, perhaps. I'm just saying some personalities and I'm not trying to implicate anyone. No, but like what would be if you got one tune, right? You have one tune, mm -hmm. say for three nights in a row, and it doesn't need to be the same tune, so we can have three options for tunes. What might that tune be? Hmm. Snowblind by Black Sabbath. I wasn't asking you, Kelly. <laughs> Ring of Fire of by Johnny Cash. And um Pretty good, pretty good. And uh, which John Prine song would I pick? Um, uh, something from the Missing Years. What's the? I know what. What was? What's the one song? The photos. It, what it, is that photo? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Picture. I know show. you weren't asking That's me, it. but I jumped in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
John Prine Picture Show. Do you know that song, Adam? I, I don't. Um, my musical knowledge is quite limited slash poor. Time to expand. It's The Missing Years is a, is a keeper album, dude. What songs would Adam pick then? I, I don't even, I can't even pinpoint three probably, but uh, can I give genres? Genres? Yeah. Genres? Yeah, I, I mean, it'd probably be good to have like some reggae, you know, upbeat, but not three songs of reggae. That'd be a little much, a little repetitive, sort of all the same. Uh, could do like a little alt music, whatever it's called. In some classic rock of some sort. Like the only song I knew that you said was the Johnny Cash song. Everything else I didn't really know what you were talking about. Yeah, old Black Sabbath, dude? No? That that that's a lot of ye- that's intense, right? That's like yelling, like hard rock. Yeah, that's but no, but old Black Sabbath is almost like it's it it's like really I'm talking the old stuff. It's almost like bluesy, sort of weird psycho mm. rock. Okay, bluesy. That's weird. that sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. Keep keep you nice and depressed in the tent. Yeah. You know, just make you question why you spent all your free time getting to this location right. to sit there in the wind when your objective seems out of shape. Sounds about yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that sounds so hardcore. But really, you just sit around in your underwear, eat snacks, wear pajamas, have a hot drink every like couple hours. And yeah, but it's, it's really hardcore. Allow the self-loathing to build to a critical point where then you you go and you fucking do something mm-hmm. because you just can't stand yourself any longer. Yeah. Yeah, because you sort of have to. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Not that much has changed over the generations. It would appear. No, no, the basics are staying the yeah. same. You two don't know one another. I, it sounds like you maybe met informally in Alaska a long time ago. We met Talkeetna or something. Yeah, we shared a ride from Talkeetna to to Anchorage, right? Mm-hmm. You you got you, yeah you you got dropped off somewhere. Yeah, Eagle River, somebody's house. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, do you have questions for one another? I actually got one. Yeah. So I was thinking, Adam. Um. So because you you climb and ski, both serious objectives right so you know like for you ski mountaineering is real it's um it's not just like a spandex suit you know schemo like you you put the mo in schemo <laughs> you know like the mat put the mo <laughs> exactly the mount the mountaineering and the climbing in the skiing are real um th- does the the kind of risk analysis and objective with, with an objective um do you think of it differently and if so how when say you're climbing up something versus skiing down let's say like the archangel ridge on foraker you went up and then you went down and then well and i mean you you climbed the casino and then went down the i guess that was northwest buttress roughly right um so mm-hmm. those were different routes but like how did the how did sort of the the risk analysis and the objective hazards and what you would deal with or not even objective hazards but hazards because some of them come from yourself right um how do those differ when you're skiing versus climbing? Is there a switch, a shift, or are they pretty much the same? Um, I think it depends a lot on like what type of skiing I'm doing. So when most people think of traditional ski touring or ski mountaineering in the lower 48, it's it's mainly an avalanche hazard as your main objective. But when you get to either more technical or just firm snow ski mountaineering, it's much more similar to climbing or alpinism in the sense that you're not as concerned about avalanches, but it's more like, is the mountain going to fall down on me? Glacier hazard, rock hazard, rock fall, ice fall, or am I going to fall off the mountain? Which I'd say is different than the average skiers understanding or not even understanding, but relationship with risk. Cause it's, I don't know, I work as an avalanche educator and as a guide and everything's about avalanches. Like come, whether in the lower 48, April and May, June, you're still skiing in Wyoming or Colorado, the high peaks, avalanches are very far like down my list of hazards. And sometimes I even struggle to articulate that with some coworkers. They're like, hey, like really just making sure we don't fall off the mountain or the mountain doesn't fall on us, which I'd say is more similar to a climber's mentality. 
And then the second part of my answer, I guess, is for me, once I'm on my skis, everything feels normally like warm and fuzzy. Um, so I feel just more comfortable while if I'm climbing pretty committing objectives, since that is a more intense medium for me, it's typically more engaging and it might feel riskier. I might have a perception of higher risk. Right. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah, I was wondering a little bit about that also as a follow up. Yeah. Like what, what role does a person's individual skill set play? And it's kind of cool because the things that you're describing in my mind are like the ultimate form of, well, actually what personally drew me to the mountains in the first place, all those years ago in Montana where Jason and I were like first climbing partners, uh, or he was my first regular climbing partner, but it, I was so drawn to just moving in the mountains, just covering terrain in the mountains, almost no matter what, what the mode, but these days I'm mostly a climber and, you know, a pretty lousy skier, but so it, it shifts for me a little bit, like, like going up, I, I feel a little bit more comfortable. And when I'm going down, I'm, you know, just simply because of my skills, my skills aren't nearly as good in skiing as they are in climbing. So when I'm skiing things that are steep for me, I'm a little bit on edge. It feels like, it feels like, I don't know, soloing, uh, fairly, like, like the things that are hard for me, I don't know, a 45 degree slope or something. I'm like, this is like soloing five, two or five, five or something. Like I, like I should be, if I just like get my head on straight, I should be able to like do very unartistic turns, but I should be able to get down this. And, uh, but, but it's like the consequences are kind of bad sometimes if you fall, but yeah, it's kind of, kind of interesting that you have the, the, the skill set and the mindset for both. Yeah. And I think something you just said resonates with me. Um, I like to think of steep skiing, like proper steep skiing is free soloing bad rock. You know, if you think of free soloing <laughs> good rock, good granite or something, it, it's low likelihood you're going to break a hold. It's mainly going to be you messing right. up. While on snow or ice, it's obviously a much more dynamic medium and like you could hit that patch of hidden blue or black ice or you could set off a small surface instability that takes you off your feet and kills you. So it's uh, like you sort of never have the rope on the descent for the most part. I mean, ideally, right. you know, you're not using the rope. So it's a lot of knowing can you make that turn. And it's similar to climbing of like, hey, if I was in the bouldering gym, could I do this move? Or if I'm at whatever elevation on the side of some peak right. on sighting, it might seem harder. And same thing for skiing. Like people are like, oh, that's so steep. I'm like, I bet if that was on the side of the ski hill, like most people would just be like, all right, going to do this crazy turn. But if it's above a big cliff. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I. Which is fascinating because that's. Yeah. It's, sorry. Oh, no, no. You, did you want to? You're good. I, but I, I, but I guess I remind sorry. Jason sent me a picture yesterday of of Vivian and those guys skiing down in Patagonia. And my first response is like, yeah, sort of anger that I'm here not doing that, you know. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but then Jason, you're saying, oh man, that looks yeah, like that that looks super sketchy. And I'm like, well, I bet for those guys, like it's let's say it's a couple thousand feet. Like I'd be savoring every turn. It's like you're climbing a splitter hand crack and you're hiking it. And it feels like five easy. You almost don't want it to end with steep skiing. Normally it's so short lived that you're like, Oh man, it's, you just like want to be in the, in the moment present because it's going to be over before you realize it. Right. Okay. Just to clarify, because I can, I, I, I know people, you know, when they perceive that someone like myself, who obviously is not able to ski something like they're yeah. skiing, and I project the word, you know, if I say sketchy, that's sort of a loaded term. It was spicy, spicy. So I'd say spicy and sketchy are interchangeable, but uh, really, uh, I mean, I don't know. Because okay, I would say. I don't, we don't need to get, uh, yeah, we don't need to go yeah, down ske this Yeah, sketchy is a little I, more negative. Sketchy is more negative. Spi yeah. Yeah, sketchy is a little more negative. Yeah, spicy for me at least. And it, we're not recording video, but I did see Kelly's head nod in affirmation. Spicy is a little more like, ooh. Because I did, yeah, you wrote 
that looks pretty fun. And I wrote, I'm sitting here kind of gripped, which was my honor. Like when I just first saw the Instagram post of those guys, I actually had a, I, some of their photos. I, I kind of got vertigo because I, I know that may sound strange, but I was just sort of trying to orient myself in the image. And I was like, holy shit, that is steep. Um, and I still had that sense when I sent that to you. So right. just to, I'm not passing judgment on those dudes, but for sure it was for me. Yeah. yeah. Spicy. Um, it's steep no matter how you slice I, it. Right? Yeah. So I am kind of curious and this, this is just kind of thinking of it. It's sort of a risk question. Uh, it's kind of a mental game question and perception of like one's ability and being comfortable. But Kelly, obviously, you know, you folks are coming at this enterprise with some different skill sets. You know, Kelly, you probably have the richer climbing background. Adam, you have the richer skiing background. But I've seen you ski over the years, Kelly. I've seen you ski like from the birth of your skiing with the snake skins. Okay. To like, you know, I've seen you ski here outside of town. I've seen you ski in the winds. And there's nothing about his skiing that isn't solid right it's very interesting to well i'm just my like i remember telling you i was like man you are such a sandbagger um but i'm kind of curious beyond the maybe me being like dude you're sandbagging like what is it about when you're approaching steep skiing that you feel like yeah maybe your skill set isn't up to snuff i think for me it's probably based on familiarity which I think breeds comfort and confidence and reinforces your skill set. Like Adam brought up a really cool point that I think about a lot when he was saying, like, you know, when looking at, say, Vivian's uh, photos and stuff and thinking, like, he's thinking that looks cool and some of us are thinking, well, that must be so sketchy. But Adam said, you know, if you were at the ski area, you would be able to do those turns without any trouble. And I love that. It's like that... I mean, that is the whole mental game right there, all, all distilled into a, a perfectly concrete, concise example. I mean, you could take like you could take somebody walking down the street and ask them to walk a straight line on the, the crease between the, the concrete and, and they'd do it just fine. They'd be like, yeah, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? This is like no big deal. Then put them on a balance beam 10 feet off the ground. About 50% of the people, I bet, would have a hard time. Then put them 100 feet off the ground where it's a fatal fall. And a lot of people would absolutely not even be able to do it at all. But but the, ta the physical task has not changed one bit. It's only the consequences that have changed. And so that mental space of zooming in to focus just on the mental task of making making the turns on steep terrain, that's the zone that I'm not quite as comfortable with as compared to my climbing. And I think it's mostly a function of familiarity because I, I don't do a whole lot of steep skiing um, and I climb a lot more. But I, I really think that's sort of what it boils down to. And, and I've, I've talked a lot with just with friends and stuff how I just think miles, 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 like building up that base, that, that mileage, that base in whatever you're doing, if you want to be good at it, that is everything. You, can, you can't not practice and then go out and expect to perform when it really matters. I mean, maybe every once in a while someone does that or you pull it off and get lucky every once in a while. But the whole thing about like, I think risk is that you, it's, a, it's an interesting paradox because on the one hand, it seems a little bit like a gamble, but on the other hand, you're trying to make it as much of a sure bet as you as you can in an unknown situation, and the and the only way you can do that, I think, is through your own preparation, and that's like not only planning and so forth, but it's also just being good, being being fit, being dialed with your skills, building up the base. That there's just no shortcut to it, and it, and it's still no guarantee, of course. But but that that's the thing with me and skiing. I just don't do as much of it. I mean, I walk, you know. I, I go for like long walks on skis, like, God, I don't know, a hundred times a winter, you know, I, out there by myself, just, just like meditative style, but I don't, I don't really ski that much. Like in terms of steep skiing, I just, 
I just don't. I don't know. I think largely because I go out by myself all the time. Um, yeah, I don't really know why. Yeah, I'm kind of curious just from a ski perspective, Adam, at what point, and maybe it wasn't one event, it's just sort of a gradual evolution where you were just hyper comfortable in an environment that even someone with a ton of backcountry ski experience would perceive as perhaps risky, but for sure high consequences if, if there's a fall, for example. And let's like take the avalanche piece out of it. Curiously, yeah, what did that look like? And when were you like, yeah, this is actually kind of like Kelly eventually evolved into a high-end alpinist. It just didn't occur overnight. Yeah. Does that make sense what I'm asking? You're growing up in the East Coast, not a mountain athlete. I, I ran a bunch, ran cross country. And when I moved out to Boulder, Colorado to go to school, I just started scrambling and soloing in my Nikes like within minutes of being there. And I love that kind of movement. Like I eventually got introduced to roped climbing and that was fun too, but that slower tempo took me a few years to adjust to. And like I would solo at my limit of what I could safely lead for way too long. Um, but like, years too long. Um, and that was the norm, you know, we go to Eldo and I'd have a buddy in front of me and I'd be on site soloing five, eight as like a five, seven climber. Uh, and it seemed to work and you know, we go on the flat irons and I'd have a friend behind me and I'd have him grab onto my ankle if it got hard. And, and th this was in Nikes for a while. And then I went into Neptune Mountaineering and asked for their stickiest approach shoes. And they're like, Oh gosh, shouldn't give this guy anything. Um, so I think like I've always just liked that kind of movement of if it's technical, cool, great. But like, and I'm getting more and more as I enter, you know, getting tad older, like to hard sport climbing and like that trying hard on a single pitch. Like I'm, I'm learning to love it. But 10 years ago, I was like, ah, sport climbing is neither sport nor climbing. And I was like, if you're not mountaineering and you're not, in the Alpine moving, like it didn't resonate with me. God, it's exactly the same, by the way. Like, I mean, Jason knows me back when my nickname was Sketchy Kelly in Missoula. Like I'm thinking, is this Sketchy Adam? Like the things you were describing. I mean, these are almost identical trajectories. Like, and I, I, I had spent so much time doing that sort of shit and soloing and thought sport climbing. I had, I had, I remember seeking out the guy, John Sherman, who I'd heard, had made this sport climbing is neither bumper stickers so I could get one and had it on, on my car. And like, now I totally appreciate like trying like that zoomed in moment. Like it's the same thing, that mental moment of trying your absolute hardest and blocking everything else out. And, and I appreciate it on a sport climb now. It's so, it's so interesting to hear you, hear your description, but yeah. And, and cool. I think some of that is like sport climbing is a, a semi controlled, more controlled than alpine yep. climbing or traditional climbing and therefore there's less risk and it's more about pure movement so there's less of that right commitment and i i do i, I love that feeling of commitment and absolutely you know maybe you get some rewards with it maybe you don't i like the ability of freeing my like on on say trying a difficult for me sport climb of freeing freeing my mind to try my absolute hardest without any limitation whatsoever. And really that that's the same thing as you were talking about how, you know, say with Vivian's ski descent and you might be like, Oh, a lot of people are like freaking out. Oh, I could never do that. Well, you could do it at the ski area though. Couldn't you? What's the difference? It's all in your head. It's all a mind game. And it's kind of neat to distill that mind game down in a, low or no consequence environments such as sport climbing where it i love how zoomed in it becomes i didn't used to appreciate that it's such a zoomed in kind of controlled environment of trying your absolute hardest without hesitation i kind of think it's neat well well it'd be cool one day to be an alpinist but i'd say i'm an aspiring <laughs> alpinist um <laughs> but uh for me yeah i guess like went to school in colorado started ski touring a bunch learned how to ski in the backcountry, and I moved to Alta, Utah afterwards for sort of four years of like classic ski bumming. 
And while I was out there, I was in my young 20s. I was very motivated and just wanted to run more, ski more, ice climb more, rock climb more, go into the big mountains, go on expeditions. And I was getting in that volume. And I don't know exactly when in that time period, but I had a good season where I skied some big steeps in the Beartooth in Montana. And then we skied the Cane Face on Mount Robson. And then a few weeks later, I skied the West Rib on Denali. And that was the first time I'd ever done something, quote unquote, you know, bigger. I don't like using the word significant, but it felt pretty neat. And I was with a partner who I looked up to and he's still a crusher. And, um, and he was like, yeah, you're, you're making some good turns in some wild places. And I remember being like, huh, I can like sort of wrap my head around this a little bit more. Because there's no ambition or aspiration besides just have fun and go on cool experiences. But I was drawn to that type of skiing. And this might sound a little silly because it didn't require, in my opinion, a huge skill set. It required wanting to be there, willing to commit, to accept some risk, sure. Um, But I don't think steep skiing is like the most technical aspect of the sport. I think it's about position and going to these places and I was really drawn to that and it it helps that I enjoy like the endurance side and you know I I really embrace like the North American wilderness ethic and that can just take you to these wild lines and just start I I always had the mentality of even if I can't do it like I want to try like I was inspired by Uli Steck and Killian Yornay and Alex Honnold without sounding like a tool. Like those were the three biggest people. I'm like, all right, I want to like have the head of Alex. I'm not going to rock climb like him, but I still want to, at least in my mind, try. And like, I want to move through the mountains like Uli and I want to be as fit as Killian. And then the world's your oyster and you can do anything. (laughs) Position, this whole idea of like position, just can you flesh that out for me a little bit, Adam? Are you talking about literal, is that like a literal term, like where you are in the time space of a mountain. Yeah. And I think that relates totally to climbing or skiing. You know, you climb the same pitch and it's on a striking a rat and you can feel the air beneath your feet. And that's, that can change how you climb it. it can change how you enjoy it or how risky it feels. Same thing with skiing. And that sort of comes back to like the ski resort or side of the mountain kind of thing. Hold on one sec. We're like a child friendly operation though, dude. Uh, okay. As long as, as long as that's not too loud or, um, I mean, position can affect how we perceive the risk and how we relate to it quite a bit. And like, like, like Kelly was saying, with the balance beam 10 feet off the ground, like some people, they get on the, they feel the cliff and that excites them and makes them enjoy the pitch or the turn more. Or others, it's going to make them think that death is imminent and that they're going to fall off the cliff and when really it might not actually be that dangerous. It's like steep climbing is most of the time safer than ledgy climbing because you're not going to hit anything. But although it feels a little scarier when you're, you know, climbing and it's inverted or you're going to take some huge whip but it's into space. It, when Adam was talking about positioning too, it, it also kind of made me think of, like, I wondered if you were talking about kind of positioning yourself in life to be able to dedicate yourself it, it to have to spend as much time as possible getting comfortable in these environments. Yeah. I think on a zoomed out level, like a lot of it was on purpose of like, Hey, how do I live a lifestyle that allows enough time in the mountains to be comfortable, to gain the skills I want to gain. I mean, some of that, Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you live in like a chicken coop? Yeah. A shack first. Yeah. Like five years of it. Like, the shack was great. It was 65 bucks a month, so I didn't have to work all that much. And then the chicken coop was 7 by 11 square feet, and I ran that for – I had the shack for a year and I think the coop for four years. And, you know, you can do a lot of fucking climbing when you're paying 65 bucks a month. It's a matter of priorities. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think – and a lot of people uh, will just struggle to understand that, like, you can live a lower overhead lifestyle and you can commit to the mountains. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I definitely wanted to, I felt like, I felt like I was playing catch up, like growing yeah. up in the East 
you know, I'm like, all right, how do I For gain sure. these skills? And didn't you, didn't you live in, in a, a shack or a cabin yourself out, out there in the Tetons? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, we lived in a yurt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. It still counts. I think it, it's not like a high rise condo where all your money's going to, you know, your mortgage or your rent or your fancy cars and this and that. I mean, you, you, you prioritize those things that are important to you, right? Yeah. We lived in a cleaning closet, um, <laughs> at the Alta Lodge in Alta for a year. And the next year they turned it back into a cleaning closet. That was a low blow. <laughs> was there like a residual smell, like ammonia or anything? Windex I, smell I, I, in there? I, like cleaning things, which, you know, some of them are nice smelling, hopefully. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And this is not an active, I, I'm pretty certain I've been to the coop. Oh, yeah. I recall the coop. I think you did, yeah. It was not an active, like it wasn't an active coop with like chicken shit. No, it wasn't an active chicken coop. It was mostly a tool shed. Yeah. I, I, I always said I was the only chicken who actually lived there. But, it, I mean, it was actually more of a tool shed, but. It, it somehow got the got the term chicken coop, but I mean it was fine. Like like, what more did you need? I mean, there's room for a bed and bookshelves, and and then I could go climbing like all the time because it you know wasn't paying much at all for rent. I mean, Kelly, I remember. I think I was like reading. Oh, I think I was listening to Colin Haley on a podcast. Colin mentioned something about you saying you got to, you know, the key to hard alpinism is you, you have to want to go up more than you want to go down. Maybe just give a little synopsis about where you first heard that quote and how you applied that in your climbing. And I'd sort of like the skiers take on it because that's very much obviously one is going up, one is going down, but there are a lot of similarities in, in the two? Yeah, some of the best advice, I guess, it's almost like life advice, really, uh, came to me in the Fairview Inn, the Fairview Bar in Talkeetna, a place Adam's familiar with as well. I was I was in there and uh, Johnny Cop and I had just done a pretty cool new route in the Alaska Range and we had had to try really hard. And the greatest thing about Johnny was that he always had, had such positive energy that and he always wanted to keep going until something turned us around. I I all have a lot of times like struggled with just like being too too afraid, making excuses for myself. And, and talking with Paul, Paul is this this Brit who's like won a bazillion PLA Dayors for like these wild remote things and he just keeps going. And and he said the simplest thing. He's like you know, he's like, yeah, you know, after I told him about what Johnny and I had done and he's like, that's really what it's all about, isn't it? The key to hard alpinism, you have to want to go up more than you want to go down. And that like applies to everything in life. That's like the most basic statement on the one hand, yet it's like the key to everything. I mean, you still have to make good decisions and sometimes it's the wise thing is to to retreat. But but it's all so much of this is a mind game, which is part of why I love it. I mean, I love being outside. I love the physical movement. I, I'm really into the athletic side of, of these pursuits and being in wild places, but I also love the engaging mental aspect of it. And so many times we make excuses for ourselves. I mean, climbers are the worst. I mean, it let like the, the list of excuses that we all have is just enormous. And, and so many times, I mean, plenty of times I've I've not gone for something or I've retreated from or out for very legitimate reasons. But there's also been times for sure that still bug me just a little bit. It's okay, but but they still bug me just a little bit where the reason we bailed was because I was making excuses for myself. I didn't have a good reason. It wasn't even like I had a really negative freaked out vibe because I, I think those are probably important to listen to also. But they're just, there wasn't really a good reason except I was just like a little scared and a little unmotivated and, and that's why I didn't get it done. The best times of my life have been when I've been able to put that aside not meaning it isn't present. Sometimes it is, and and you you go you go ahead anyway. You work with it. You work alongside it. It's just, it's just a, a simple fear management deal. And so yeah, you want to go up more than you want to go down. That that's got you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but that's got to apply. Not literally the up and the down part. You kind of invert those even. But it's kind of about the the mental space of of desire and mental discipline. 
uh, with skiing as, as well as climbing, right? Yeah, I really don't think there's any major difference. It's all about wanting to do it. And if you're not in that headspace or you don't really want to, in a lot, then you don't do it. And a lot of skiers are like, well, I could ski hippie pow and smile to the valley floor and accept less risk. Why would I do that? If it's not rewarding, don't do it. You know, if, if sport climbing scratches the itch, keep ticking off the grates. But if you want to go into the big mountains with more uncertainty and crazier objectives, only do it if it makes sense. And that's why it's quite a niche activity, you know, whether it's hard alpinism or like very committed ski mountaineering. Um, but yeah, I think the, the ethic is really the same there. And I, I can think of one experience. I was skiing um, the Otter Body route on the Grand Teton, and we were sort of committing to that objective to the face. And I had one partner who's like, we can still bail. Like, we can still go the other direction. And for him, he was probably like, I'm going to have a great day no matter what. And my maybe a little more type A is like, this was our objective. We can do it. There's no re nothing bad has happened to tell us that we should bail. So we, we, we did commit. But, yeah, it's like in his mind, it's like, hey, we could just we could go right. It would all be good. Probably be less stressful. Uh, maybe a higher smile factor. <laughs> yeah, and, and that that part it, it strikes me too. Like I, I'm reflecting upon myself that things sometimes change in life too. Like like nowadays, I'm probably a little bit more like your buddy was on that deal. I'm a little bit like, yeah, you know, you just turn around and go back and drink coffee. Whereas before, it, like things like that would have, you know, they they did bother me a lot more. And the times I'd make excuses for myself, they would they they would kind of work at me and, and sometimes they'd turn into positive drive. It's kind of funny, like these days, you know, that, that it's like my, my peak years, I think are probably past me. And I just, I mean, in one way of thinking in terms of peak performance, I guess is what I maybe mean, but maybe not peak experiences in life. Um, you know, there's just like a whole lot of ways you can, you can enjoy, you can enjoy life and a whole lot of ways you can enjoy the mountains. And, uh, but I think if, if you're in that phase where you really are seeking, these big mountain wild adventures, there is some truth in uh, Ramsden's uh, words to me that night in the Fairview Inn, you know, that the, the key to hard alpinism is you have to want to go up more than you want to go down. I mean, it's so simple and distilled. I have a question for you, Adam, in that specific circumstance on the otter body. Um, you're obviously not roped up, but that said, like, was there a conversation about like just resetting no no not not in the slightest yeah yeah we stayed the course pretty much we were trying to find an anchor to wrap onto the face my friend asked me where the what the beta was i said that i had no beta i just wanted to figure it out and he did not like that we had no intel and that's when that conversation happened and then i just fully committed and skied lower and made it work yeah, I, we weren't in like a, a mindset or where we had like the time to hash it out. And sometimes I can be a little dictator-esque. <laughs> little Napoleon? <laughs> That's awesome. I get to call someone else that. <laughs> we, we were going to go that way. But is that sort of like if I went around and kind of surveyed the community perhaps – like, would you be known as kind of like very, you know, myopic in the mission? It's like, obviously, you're doing an assessment and there are things going on in terms of like risk mitigation. But that said, are you someone that's like, oh, yeah, dude, we're going skiing with Adam. It's going to be he's going to want to ski the objective. Is there that kind of like vibe? I think with people that I team up with often. I remember a few years ago, I went with two buddies on a, a new route objective and they bailed like three or four times on it. And we got up there and it wasn't that nice out, you know, like it wasn't lining up. And I'm like, we're, we're just going to do it. Like, like, that's why I'm here. Like, we're just going to commit and go for it. So yeah, I, I can be tunnel vision or laser focus, but I don't think people that like don't team up with me would think that. Okay. I think that's a really good segue into this last 
part? Well, I have an account and came across Will Gadd's pretty lengthy, detailed post about risk. And, you know, I've got it up in front of me. Is anyone, have folks taken a look at this? I mean, in a nutshell, it's just saying that, like, we should accept that the mountains are risky and be honest with it. And like, let's not pretend that driving is more dangerous or. And he talked about hazard times probability, uh, which I, I think has been, you know, long, long known to be kind of a distillation of, of what it's all about. Like the likelihood of a bad outcome versus like how bad is the bad outcome. And so you, you make these analyses as you go. And yeah, I think, I think it, his points were really good. Like, cause it's just, it's basically about being honest with yourself. And, uh, he, he even talked about the term, uh, scrambling, almost like the, the way people downplay things. And it's funny. I, some friends and I were talking about that recently around here as well. And I was like, I, I was like, I've been sort of thinking the same thing a little bit, which is kind of interesting because I, I'd always just use the term scrambling just loosely, like, you know, whatever, you know, if you, if you're not using a rope, then it's probably scrambling. I don't know. But then you're like, well, I don't know that that maybe does in this like, um, hyper-connected world where people are reading about each other's things all the time. And, you know, Alex Honnold for him, scrambling is probably five ten, five eleven without a rope. Like for anybody else, that's, that's going to be like a death sentence. And, and not to say that that's an exactly perfect parallel or correlation, but at the same time, like maybe it is a little bit dishonest in the, in the name of trying to appear cool when you're so dismissive of everything, like, oh yeah, I just scrambled up this thing. Or it's like, yeah, maybe if it's fifth class climbing and if you fall, you're going to die, maybe it's not really scrambling. Like it's maybe, um, maybe worthwhile not to downplay everything so much. Cause in a, in a certain sense, like, so I'm kind of a big fan of, uh, of not, of people who don't spray too much. I mean, Jesus, you know, like the spray lords are kind of insufferable, right? And, and, but at the same time, like, like totally downplaying everything is sort of also a way of being a spray lord. You know, you're like, oh, it was no big deal for me. Oh, I'm so cool. It was, it was no big deal. And, and if that's sort of your, your MO and you're going out on social media or wherever, um, kind of doing that all the time, I, I'm not so sure that that's something really to admire either. Because it's a it's a little bit dishonest as well, but but yeah, like being too it's not even humble, but like underplaying is it's almost like a different style of chest thumping. Um, like if you went solo to route, just because for you it's easy, doesn't make it scrambling. And that's yeah. where like being being objective about it. Like, was it fifth class rock climbing with real consequences? Right. You could say oh, it was like an right. easy climb or well within your limits. But if you're going to go on the internet where you're talking to the world, maybe you just be honest and, you know, use more objective measures. Right. But. Yeah, I know it's kind of weird because then also when we talk about this, it, it also makes me think, well, so now we're in the realm of like how we appear to others and what influence we have. And and I don't want to say that doesn't exist, but but like risk is risk management is such an individual decision and we are all subject to the influence of others. And yet I, I, I really dislike the people who are almost like authoritarian about it. Like, I mean, the climbing mags, you know, when they existed, they used to get a million letters to the editor, like saying you shouldn't run that picture of someone cause they're climbing without, without a helmet on. And I'm like, Oh, well, Christ, you know, well, so how about the fact that they were run out on, on this climb? That's probably going to be a bigger consequence if they fall than anything else. Like how much are you going to micromanage everyone's individual choices around risk? It seems like making informed decisions, being honest with yourself, that's probably the the most important thing I would think. And and you could argue that it's hard to make informed decisions when everyone around you is bullshitting and downplaying things and humble bragging or outright spraying or whatever. But I don't know, man, like the world's an imperfect place. And like that if, if you, if you made the approach to risk become formulaic, then life would cease to be art. There would be no, there would be no art involved in taking risk and going into the mountains and these 
places where we can express ourselves if, if everything subscribed to a formula. So I'm not, exa- I'm not at all sure that we can expect people to change too much, but maybe we should think about trying to be as honest as we can with ourselves. Yeah, I, I think like honesty and transparency is huge. And if we think of like risk in general, like Western civilization is quite risk adverse. You know, like be safe, be careful Like yeah. when you're like doing anything, have a safe flight, hope the drive goes well, like all, all this stuff. But really like, what's that mean? Like have a safe flight. What are you going to like bless the pilot and <laughs> yeah. like check out the engine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not fine. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then with like climbing or, you know, mountain sports, whatever, climbing, skiing, it's like, then within that, there's, you know, the people that are perceived as bold or larger risk takers. And there's somebody else that thinks that they're being more conservative by bringing in a triple rack and wearing a helmet and all these things, which there's nothing wrong with, but like in there, like I'm doing it right, right. You're doing it wrong, obviously in that. That like goes from every level from like the first day novice to like a seasoned veteran, professional, whatever. Oh yeah. And I think like blanket statements, it seems like in the Alps there's more of an acceptance of like, yeah, like you might go into the mountains and not come home one day, or like you might get hurt out there. And in the US there's more of this like, ah, well like we just want everyone to stay safe at all times. But that that's not realistic if we want there to be talented climbers and skiers like in the Tetons where I live, you know, there's accidents at the ski area and there are these free riders that are pushing the limits of what's possible. And then we're like appalled when one of them doesn't come home and not saying we want anyone to ever get hurt, but it's also like, sure, let's be realistic of like the mountains. They're made of snow and rock and ice. And it's not a forgiving medium when we do fall and we like, we celebrate things when it goes well. Like if, if someone goes on a big yeah. Alpine push and they crush it and there's high fives and summits and all the good things, it's like, man, that's awesome. And then if they like get benighted and have an epic or something worse happens, we're like, what were they thinking climbing that route with that little amount of gear and those few resources? And it's like this double-edged sword where it's like, well, if we want the the victories or the glories or the success stories, like, Unfortunately, there's going to be someone that has this pure vision that like is either unrealistic or goes too close to the edge or or the numbers don't work out. Right. You know, something falls on them. So maybe the 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 honesty or, or or maybe the most important aspect to it is kind of the the honesty of acceptance rather than pretending as though you have all the answers to the unanswerable me, meaning how you're going to be perfectly safe in the mountains or, or that there is even such a thing as being perfectly safe in the mountains, but rather like the real honesty kind of comes in to a degree of acceptance. So you try to make educated decisions. It's an imperfect world, it, but you take the best information you have. Try to be completely honest with yourself, which occurs in a whole number of different ways. But part of the, part of that is the simple acceptance that by virtue of going into a wild environment, there is there is the possibility of, of an adverse outcome. Anybody who pretends to have the answers, it it, it is a cad. I think that there is no such thing as is completely having the answers to how you should behave at all times surrounding risk. It's just too variable. And, and I think it makes makes people uncomfortable if someone else is willing to either accept more risk than they are and they're like well clearly my decision making is on point obviously and theirs is flawed and sometimes there's lack of understanding of hey that person's in a different place in their life or they have a different skill set um like it's hard for some people to understand like how talented certain climbers and skiers are like that that's just really They've got that. I mean, you know, without using the classic example, like Alex Honnold seems pretty comfortable climbing 510 rock. And it's hard for most people to wrap their heads around that, like, he's on a 510 crack. He's probably not going to fall. Right. Which doesn't mean that it's safe for you and me to do. But for him, it is. And, and, And why is that so hard? It seems like for people to bridge that. Because it's sort of 
it's crummy to be like, well, I'm not as good. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it'd be cool <laughs> if I could just hike five ten and put a cam in every 30 meters, right. but like that wouldn't work for my well skill set, my head, all of it. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's like being honest with their own skill set and with their comfort levels and like, like knowing who they are and where they are. Right. Yes. Like we, we all have a different, set of cards we were born with, you know, genetics, like upbringing opportunities. And it's just like being like, all right, th- this is what I've got. Let's, let's see how it's going to work. Yeah. You know? And I love that. And that, that can be hard to stomach. Yeah. Like that you're not gonna like you, you know, I could probably dedicate the rest of my life and I'm pretty sure that the upper echelon of rock climbing would just never happen. You know, we don't need to put an exact number on it, <laughs> but like, th- like th- there's, everyone's got, and someone else could, well, I'll put like six weeks in and do this like 15 minutes of training and they're climbing 514 and cool. But it's hard to accept that like we're not all the same and we have different abilities. So, you know, I just, when I read this, you know, I keep on looking at this Will Gad um, post and what I have highlighted and I keep on coming back to it because I'm I'm trying to kind of figure out What's he really getting at? So he talks about, you know, he's talking about this, this, um, you know, he intros with hazard and probability equals risk. He chats about that a little bit. And he's talking about this quote of like, we scrambled this five, four thousand foot Northeast Ridge today. And he, he's making the claim that it's like, no, you didn't, you soloed it. Don't call it scrambling it. And we've, we've gone there, right? We've covered that, that piece a little bit. And I think really he's asking people to assess the hazard, which he equates with consequence, right? The like worst, I take that as like, what's the pers- worst possible outcome here if the shit goes wrong, right? It, does that sound fair? Is my assessment or my summarizing okay so far? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he's asking for, honest hazard evaluation and honest words that help define the hazard accurately. And I'm going up, he's sort of, he has consequence and hazard, I think are interchangeable to him. Yeah. How do you, is that something, you know, Adam, do you think about Kelly? Have you thought about it in the past? This idea of like, are are you even going to like actually the real consequence, right? Could be, yeah, it could be death, right? It could be, paralysis, what have you, or in an intense situation or you're just preparing yourself mentally, I mean, as part of the game, actually, and not even game, I hate to use that word, but part of the like process of preparing yourself to be in these environments is blocking out the consequence. It's like, okay, yeah, I all know what's going to happen. You know, gravity is gravity. But but Um, I think... I think you can push away the consequences like once you've committed, but you can't be like at the crux move thinking about the consequences. You need to sort of decided when, let's say you left your last piece of protection and you're engaging in that run out, like fully committed. Otherwise there's a higher chance you're actually probably going to fall. Um, and I think it's the same thing with skiing. Like once you decide to commit, whatever that means, drop into a face, pull a rope after a repel, like, that's not when you're like, huh, like, wonder what's going to happen if I fall. Hopefully that was like done on the approach or the night before or whatever. It's like you flip a switch and then you're, it, it, you're no longer doing so much analysis, but rather you're simply executing. You're that, simply executing. That's sort of the way yeah. I think about it. Yeah. I, I think about it. I, I definitely think about the consequences before I make the decision. Once I've made the decision and committed, you know, so I mean, what, we like to talk about all these uh, kind of nuances and vagarities, and, and that's the way much of life is. But I very much feel that when you're in those situations and once you've made that decision, I think it's useful to, to flip a switch and be completely committed, 100% present to exactly what you need to do to execute safely. No longer should you be thinking about the consequence because it, because it's too fucking late. The, the time to have made that decision was, you know, a few moves down or before you, you dropped into the chute 
or what or whatever it may be. And I, I think that only becomes noise that distracts you from performing your best, which kind of circles back a little bit to what we were talking about with like Vivian making those turns and Adam's like, well, I don't know. I bet you can make those turns at the ski area. Well, yeah, but I couldn't do it out there. And it, it, yeah, once you've committed, you need to be committed completely to making those turns or to making those moves. And that's all you're fucking thinking about. I, uh, I read last year, I don't remember his name, but some British, you know, some crazy sketchy British climbing. It's like some 514 route. And he had this whole write up of, all right, I sort of get to the crux. And if I'm feeling bad, I just take or I get lowered or whatever. And it was at his last pro because pretty much knowing that if he fell, he could die. Like it was a fatal fall, like an X route or some British rating. I don't fully comprehend. And it was like this long essay about this sort of like he had set metrics. So there was even no decision making there. Like if I have, if I'm pumped i don't do it or if i'm feeling good i just go like and don't think and don't waste time or shake out and chalk up and yeah i think a lot of that it's like making the decision beforehand like we're talking about and minimizing that noise in your head because that noise sometimes can be rational and a lot of the things we're talking about are irrational like yes. why climb that ice climb where there's going to be a <laughs> 60 meter pitch with no protection like i had a friend that did this spring or why climb that dangerous route or why ski something where you're just above a cliff for thousands of feet and there's no real reason besides you want to and it's enjoyable to you and hopefully you're doing it for the right reasons which is like you're having this amazing mountain experience whether it's solo or with your partner and that without sounding too corny like bring something into the rest of your life and you're not doing it for, you know, your cult following on the internet. Um, but I think most people go into the mountains because it's amazing, not because it has to do with yes. the internet. And the internet's just like a byproduct of the era we're living in. Yeah. If you're thinking about that, it's yet another distraction. And, and the great thing about these engaging pursuits is that they, they, they caught they require complete focus. And, and you, you hear people s say that. I, I mean, I've heard like people say, it, and it's usually like beginners who are new to it, you know, get out and climbing. They're like, oh my God, for the first time in however long, I was doing something where I wasn't thinking about my email. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because you had to be completely focused. You had to be completely present. It required that of you. And and I think that gets back to that um, when, when you're, Approaching something that might have consequence, um, you have to make the decision at the right point in time as to whether you're going to commit or not, and then you flip the switch, and if you've decided to commit, then you need to be completely present and completely committed, because otherwise you're not going to perform well. Um, you know, and, and if if you find out partway in that, that it's not going well and that your headspace isn't right, maybe there's an escape route, and if so then it's time to fucking take it, you know, like so that you can do it again another time. Maybe there's a way out, but, but sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you have to be completely focused, uh, until the end. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, there's, there's a ton of ways to experience the mountains. Yeah. What, one thing that you said there, Kelly, is like that full engagement and you don't think about your emails or all the other unfun things in life. I mean, working as a guide, I, I see a lot of my clients and they experience that on moderate terrain but for them it's very engaging and like that's really cool and like the beauty is that we can all experience that whether you're on five fun climbing you're skiing something moderate like it's not about how hard it is and sometimes when we're comparing ourselves you know to the big household names it's like we all always want to be better and that's part of the athletic component right is like challenging ourselves to be better but like we can get that that flow state, call it what you want. Everyone has a different way to get there, but like it's normally not about how hard it is. I mean, a lot of times I can just get that by like pushing myself endurance wise on something that is very easy for me or, or low risk for most. And I can just have this amazing day show up smiling ear to ear when I get home and it's like, Oh, do you do something wild? Oh, not really. I was just like out for 10 hours and, <laughs> feeling good and whatever. So I, I think that's like a really cool takeaway is like 
yeah, like we can get reward from accepting risk in wild, big, remote places in our backyard or in the greater ranges. But we can also like get a lot of joy just from moving through the mountains, whether we're scrambling or soloing or what have you. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, 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 it feels like there's a time and a place for each one. I mean, just like there's a, there's a time when you need, if you're approaching or you're, you're engaged in a committing climb or ski, you need to make a decision at some point as to whether you're going to commit to this and be completely present or not. Um, there's also times and places where, where you want to get your fix in a different way. It, I mean, I shudder to think of the look on the face of my younger self at what I'm about to say, but I, I just go for walks all the time. This shows how, how old I am and I'm like, just enjoy being outside in the mountains. I, sometimes that is exactly what I need too. It, it, a friend um, one time had said that he, he thought that beginner climbers were at a distinct advantage and I was like, what are you talking about? Because this was a time in my life where I was like, I wanted to be good. I, everything I, I tried, I, I wanted to do something hard. Um, but he was, he was saying, because the world is completely open to them. And I've thought about that a lot through the years. Like, so, you know, Tommy or Josh Wharton, like they have to go really far to get their fix. Look at how far Alex Honnold has to go to get his fix. And we have no objective measure of how that feels inside, but for all we can tell, I mean, the, the beginner climber on their first five, seven lead or Adam, you talked about when, when, when you're guiding and sometimes you take somebody out and show them the mountains the first time going up the Owen Spalding route or whatever. For all we, for all we can tell, they're getting the exact same feeling inside as Josh or Tommy get when they're pushing their limits or Alex or, or whoever. And it, they're so much more open to you when you're at those earlier stages, I guess conversely or um, accordingly, you can also maybe expand your horizon when we're not so focused. Like when I'm at a little bit later stage in life now, I'm not so driven about this alpinism all the time. So, so on some days I get, I get that fix when I'm walking my dog and just having a great day, just enjoying the mountains. Yeah. It's almost like at the beginning of your time in the mountains, you're, you have more opportunity and I wish I could like have that feeling again and you, you can't turn it back. And when I'm talking to like people that are younger, less time in the mountains, I'm like, man, they're just so lucky. Like they're just so, so, so stoked all the time. Like, and I'm not like fully jaded, but like as the years tick by, <laughs> it does get harder to have those feelings and scratch the itch. And right. And there's almost like resentment at myself. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think, I think I'm in the middle, Kelly. Like I'm not to your stage where like, I'm trying to like just walk around and be like, oh man, but like <laughs> I'm getting there. It's a process. And I'm right? just trying to enjoy the process and enjoy the journey. But when yeah. I look at some of my younger buddies in the mountains, I'm like, man, like you guys just don't get how, how awesome it is where there's just something new around every corner. And right. But yeah. I, I will say it's not like I have it mastered. I mean, there are plenty of times where Sonia's basically like, you're kind of being an asshole. You got to go climbing and go do something hard, you know, or, or yeah, it's not like I have this mastered by any means. But when I'm skiing, the world is open to me. That is the only advantage I have over Adam when it comes to skiing. I I can have a blast on a 20 degree slope, like 10 degrees even, like <laughs> it. I, I'll ski it all day <laughs> and I'm rocking, man. I'm a superstar. I feel great. Anything else? Any questions for each other? I think we're okay. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Adam, it was great to see you and I'm psyched for your trip, man. Yeah, it was uh, super fun chatting with you and I guess just closing thoughts because you did mention the disaster style, Jason, in your uh, email thread. And Kelly, I, I th you might be appalled at how much... Uh, your insights on disaster style have influenced myself and others. But, oh, no. <laughs> but I, I read something like probably 10 or 15 years ago about you embracing disaster style. I think it was like you and Josh and Karakorum with a like dropped rack. Yeah. And it was like right at the time that Patagonia released like the Nano Puffy. And I just started doing everything with just the Nano Puffy to like see what I could get away with layers wise. <laughs> 
And then I read something that Killian was doing like 10K days with no food. So I wanted to see like what I could do with no food and water, you know, just like <laughs> pushing how little like my own disaster style. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, disaster style is a <laughs> metaphor for life, really, when you think about it. I mean, is of course, dark humor, you know, as we all have. But like, it's also like a, a, a metaphor for like not giving too much of a fuck about what the rest of the world thinks and being willing to throw yourself out there and wanting to go up more than you want to go down you know it adam i apologize if i um and i apologize to your parents if i had a negative no no it's on you but uh but that's cool to hear man i i think it was positive um i mean not everyone would agree with that but uh (laughs) yeah yeah. right (laughs) (laughs) well i do too when i when i look at the shit you've done it's pretty rad man it's really inspiring Uh, I, i love seeing it and i love 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 seeing the younger generation get after it in the mountains the, the way that you do. So keep at it and stay smart. Yeah, we've got a lot, a lot of big footsteps to fill in and a lot of inspiring things are, have been done before and still going down. So It's great to see. Thanks, folks, for listening. And please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and head over to thehighroute.com you got to remember those hyphens to learn more about what we're up to and how you can be involved. Lastly, the theme music you've heard comes from Albuquerque-based band Storms in the Hill Country from their album The Self-Transforming. We'll link to it on the website and the show notes. Onward and upward. Pay attention to the sound. Pay attention to your dreams Pay attention to what's all around And everything that's in between And I see my beauty in you And I become the mirror can't close its eyes. Must see my beauty.